0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. Thank you to all the kids for doing a great job this morning, and for all those who work with our children. It's a great blessing. So a week ago, we began a study on one of the biggest themes in all of Jeremiah. It was the theme of idolatry. Or as it says on the PowerPoint, idolatry as spiritual Adultery. And these messages are closely connected to another big theme of the book that we looked at the theme of judgment. Because throughout Jeremiah, there's this constant refrain that judgment is on the way. Judgment is coming, or more specifically, that Babylon was coming. God was raising up another nation to plunder his people and to destroy his city and his house. And one of the key questions that we might ask about that is why. Why would God do such a thing to his people? Why would God do that to his own house that was set apart for his name? God's short answer to that can be found in the opening chapter. We looked at this last week. You can look at it, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 16. This is one of the very first things that God ever tells Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, verse 16. God says and I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me they have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands that is God's short answer to the question of why and what happens in the rest of the book I think is that God basically develops and illustrates that answer and to get into this we looked at the first sermon that I think Jeremiah ever preached. It was almost entirely on the theme of idolatry. That was from chapter 2, verse 1. It goes all the way into chapter 3, maybe even into chapter 4. And and for today, just to remind us, I'm just going to pick a couple of the verses that maybe you would remember from this. So look at Jeremiah chapter 2 and look at the first two verses. Maybe you remember this. This is chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. But then look down to verse five and listen to what the Lord asks his bride. Verse five, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. And then perhaps the two most memorable lines come in this next passage, chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they're not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O oh heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out or dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And in some ways, that could describe every sin to some degree, Right? Sin involves forsaking God for something that will never satisfy. But especially here, this is maybe the most vivid picture in Jeremiah of idolatry. Now, those are just a few of the texts that stood out from last week's uh, message. But even from those couple of verses, maybe you could remember then some of the big conclusions we made about idolatry. Like, like number one, idolatry is the first and greatest cause of the judgment of God. And I keep saying it, that God obviously cares deeply about how we treat or mistreat other people. But judgment falls first because of what people do to God. A second, how idolatry, and you saw it in this text, is exchanging God for something else. It, idolatry is often talked about in Jeremiah as forsaking God or forgetting God. But it's more than that. Idolatry also involves exchanging God for something else, for something less. It involves exchanging God for emptiness. That's that famous text. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then the third thing was that idolatry is, as it says on the screen, is spiritual adultery. From from that text on, in Jeremiah, there's this constant picture of God As the faithful husband. The protective husband. The one who loves and has covenanted himself to his bride. But then God's people are pictured throughout the book of Jeremiah. As an unfaithful bride. They are a covenant breaking people. And that is really I think helpful to understand why God cares so much. About when his people run after idols. It helps us to see the jealousy of God, the good kind of jealousy, the kind that he has for the love of his bride. Okay, so that, that's kind of what we look at. <clears throat> but this theme of idolatry goes throughout the whole book. Okay? And I didn't want to just take a look at just the first three chapters. I wanted to see how this is developed in the rest of the book. The book's 52 chapters. This might be the biggest theme in the book. So what I did is I, for today is I've, I've just decided to take five select texts from different chapters okay, that are throughout the book. This to just try to fill in the picture of what Jeremiah says about idolatry or really what God says about idolatry. Now in, in almost every case we're gonna look at five passages but in almost every case we're just gonna look at a couple verses of what is actually a longer message about idolatry. So you could look at this more on your own. In almost every case though I'm only gonna take us to one text on this, you could look at this in multiple chapters within the book. Okay, so I'm just trying to, like, give us a taste of what God says about idolatry, of how he looks at it when his own people give their love to other gods. What does God think about that? So the first text, look at Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to look at five different chapters. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 7. We're going to jump into a very intense text The language in these texts is really rough, okay? Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Starts with a question from God. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation like this? Now, as with last week, the language in these texts is very direct, very stark. But remember, this is God's own description of what he saw his bride doing. So think of those questions. How can I pardon you at the beginning, at the end? Shall I not punish them for this? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation like this? But in the middle, you can see that their idolatry led to what? Gross, blatant immorality and adultery. And I think in this text, this is talking about physical immorality and adultery. One of the things that is clear as you read through Jeremiah is that a lot of the idolatry, this so-called worship, involved gross immorality. So a false god like Baal, you probably heard about Baal I many times. Baal was a god of fertility, for example. And so the so-called worship of a god like that was often accompanied by blatant sexual sin. And debauchery. But as you read through Jeremiah. It's it's also really clear. That there was far more. Immorality and adultery. Going on among God's people. Than just in the worship services. If you will. Adultery was rampant. Throughout the society. And there I think there's no doubt. That the home. Was breaking down. In Jeremiah's day. And it is not surprising. Because when a, when a person or a people is blatantly unfaithful to the covenant that they've made with the Lord. It is not a surprise at all that that same person or that same people will be unfaithful to their spouses, to the covenants they've made. See, in the Bible, idolatry is just the beginning. Uh, Or to think of this another way. Idolatry is never the last sin or the only sin that we commit. It always leads to more. And its effect always goes beyond the individual who's practicing it. Idolatry leads eventually to the breakdown of homes, communities, and ultimately of the entire society. And so we hear God asking questions like this. Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a people like this? Now, let's go to another text. This will be from chapter 7. <clears throat> so text number 2, chapter 7. Again, we're just jumping. This is a long sermon that runs all through chapter 7, but, which we may look at at a different time. But Jeremiah chapter 7 for today, verses 17 to 19. So Jeremiah seven seventeen, God asked Jeremiah, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle fire. And the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Now, the queen of heaven is like this other god of another nation, probably the god Ishtar. And then in the text says, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Now, this is all really sad, of course. As you see that the whole family was so often involved in the worship of other gods. And you think back to what you see in the Old Testament. God had been incredibly clear in the Old Testament about the need for moms and dads to teach their children his ways and to show them how to love and worship God. But by Jeremiah's day, you are, you are seeing the end result of generation after generation of unfaithfulness in doing that. Okay. What, what is the description? The children go outside and gather the wood. And the fathers kindle the fire. The women knead the dough. And together, they pour out drink offerings to other gods. And for the children, sadly, they just grew up thinking this is just the way it is. This is what mom and dad do. This is what grandma and grandpa do. This is what we do. And in this way, the sins of the parents fall hard on their children and on their children's children. And some of us have probably, sadly, experienced some of this to one degree or another where maybe the sins of previous generations have been passed on to one generation after another. And we realize that only God's intervention can break that cycle. But then by the end of the chapter, by the end of chapter 7, We hear of one more way that idolatry affects the family, but this is in a different way. And this is one of the saddest things in Jeremiah or in the Old Testament at all. Look down to Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 30 and 31. Jeremiah 7, verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They've set their detestable things in the house, that is called by my name to defile it. It's bad enough, but then look at the next phrase. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. And this is what I meant about idolatry's effect on the family. Earlier, we saw the whole family worshiping together. But here in this text, we find something that is pure evil. This is happening throughout Judah. We read about it. that This also happened in Israel, the northern kingdom. I read about that earlier today. They built places specifically to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. And just to be very clear, this is talking about child sacrifice. Like this is not some metaphor for something else. This is talking about offering little children in the fire, to false gods in the hope of getting something that you wanted back. And did you notice what God says about that? And by the way, he, he doesn't just say it here. He says it three times, this way, in the book. This is something I did not command. Nor did it even come into my mind. And here I am reminded of a couple things. One is that you can't tell at the beginning how much idolatry will cost you. Or where it will lead you in the end. But but God is also clearly reminding us in a text like this of how different He is than other gods. I mean, three times God talks about child sacrifice in Jeremiah, and three times He says that. I did not command this, nor did I even think about it. Our God loves life, He loves babies, He is good. All right, text number three. So far, we've looked at text from two chapters. Now to the third. This is sad, too, but in a different way. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. So chapter 11, again, is a a much longer message than what we're going to look at. But chapter 11, verse 9. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have... Turn back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Now that's like what we've already seen. But now look at verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. Now, what do you, what do you see in those verses? A couple new things from what we've seen. Like, there is a day when it will be too late to escape. God's judgment for idolatry we don't know when that will be but there is a day when it will be too late because God says in this text though they cry to me I will not listen to them and when that happens what will people do to whom will they cry out they'll only be able to cry out to the gods they've served and what will happen what will they always find those gods will never be able to save them. That's what it says in verse 12, right? They'll, they'll go and cry to the gods, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. Now, to add to this, text number four, Jeremiah chapter 30, <coughs> verse 12. So it's from the middle of the book. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 12. Again, just jumping into a broader message 30 verse 12 for thus says the lord your hurt is incurable your wound is gravest there is none to uphold your cause there is no medicine for your wound no healing for you all your lovers have forgotten you they care nothing for you okay now what do you see there Not only are other gods unable to heal, other gods do not care. They always take and they never give. And when trouble and despair and loneliness comes, which it always does, the gods you served will forget about you. Why? Because they do not. That's that's what we get when we forsake the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now to our final text for today. You can turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 44. This, I think, is the last story of Jeremiah's life that we have. So this also seems to be the last message, at least that we have, that he ever preached. Jeremiah chapter 44. Now, for a little context here, because this is going to be, we're going to read a little bit more, a little review. You might remember that after Babylon came, because Jeremiah ministers for 40 years. So a lot of his ministry, he's saying, look, Babylon's on the way. They're coming. But eventually they come. And they completely destroy Jerusalem. They burn down the temple. They take lots of people away into captivity. Jeremiah continues to minister during that time. But one of the things that you have to remember is Babylon does not take everybody away. They take a lot of people away, like some of them you've heard of, Daniel, his friends, or Ezekiel, people like this. But they leave some of the people back in the land. And Jeremiah is given the option to have a good life in Babylon or to stay with those people back in the land. And he decides to stay back in the land. Okay, but eventually even though God told those people not to do this, those people decided to run away to Egypt and they actually dragged Jeremiah along with them. Okay? So, this, so if, if you're thinking back to the picture of the boiling pot, okay, this story is after the boiling pot has been like completely emptied out and all the judgment has fallen and they've got this group of people that has ran away to Egypt. And they've taken Jeremiah with them. This is the last story that we know of in his life, I think. Okay? That means that the people he's talking to have actually witnessed firsthand all of the judgment. It wasn't just a threat. They've actually seen it with their own eyes. Okay? They have tasted what their sins have led to. They've seen how all their idols failed to save them. Okay? Okay? Now, let's read that story. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans, the Jews, who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdol, at Tapines, at Memphis, and in the land of Pothras. This is like the Egyptian places, okay? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day... They are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger and that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet persistently I sent to you all my servants, the prophets saying, oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled. Okay. Were you able to follow that? That's what I was getting at in that kind of story, right? All these people who fled to Egypt had witnessed with their own eyes the disaster that had happened. Okay. Now, let's continue reading in verse 7. And now, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Why do you commit this great evil? Against yourselves to cut off from you, man and woman, infant and child from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live? now Can you understand what's happening? What are they doing? Even down in Egypt, even after all that they had witnessed, they are still making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt. Even after all they saw, they just can't stop chasing other gods. God just keeps asking, why? Why are you doing this? Are you just wanting me to completely wipe you off the face of the earth? And did you notice God's first question in verse 7? Why do you commit this great evil? against yourselves. I mean, at this point, God isn't even appealing to the covenant or to what they're doing to him like he does in the other parts of the book so often. God is just appealing to common sense. Like, why would you keep doing this to yourselves? So in the next verses, the pleas and the warnings go on and on, but there's one specific thing I want you to see in the story, and that is the response to the final message. Of Jeremiah. Verse 15. <clears throat> so After Jeremiah says all this. Verse 15. Then all the men. Who knew. That their wives had made offerings to other gods. And all the women who stood by. A great assembly. All the people who lived in Pothras in the land of Egypt. Answered Jeremiah. As for the word that you have spoken to us. In the name of the Lord. We will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed. We will make offerings to the queen of heaven. We will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we used to, both we and our fathers, our kings, our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then, back then, we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything. And on and on that response goes in that chapter. But we've seen enough to understand it. And I think think that one line pretty much summarizes Jeremiah's entire, like the response to everything he did. We will not listen to you. But what is shocking to me about this story in particular is that this is still their response. Even after everything they saw. Even after all the judgment after they had seen everything Jeremiah said come true, even then, they simply will not give up their idols. In fact, if anything, they're even more committed to go after them now than they were before. Apparently, not even judgment is strong enough to root out idolatry from the human heart. We've seen a lot of things about idolatry. So what I want to do is try to, the best I can, give a couple clear, concise sentences about what we've seen. Okay, I'm going to put it in and phrase it this way. Six things idols will never do. Okay? One, this is just from what we've seen. Right? Idols will never give. They only take. Idols will take your time energy, resources, your love, your family, whatever they can get their hands on, and in the end, idols will give you nothing. Two, idols will never make a person a better person. In Jeremiah, as throughout the Bible, idolatry is just the beginning of a downward spiral. It always leads to more and more sin, which leads to more and more wrath. And think of it this way, if human beings are designed by God to know him, to love him, to worship him. Once we begin to turn from him, it's always going to go downhill. Idols have the ability to hollow us out, to make us less and less of what we were made to be. I think of this line about idols that shows up twice in the Psalms. And Jeremiah says very similar things too. But in the Psalms, maybe you've heard this. Those who make idols become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Three, idols will never be able to satisfy you. This is something we've seen both weeks in Jeremiah. Idols always hold out promises that they never fulfill. And one of the greatest lies that idols sell is a lie that they'll satisfy. Every false god whether those of wood and stone or those of pleasure and power, is a broken cistern that can hold no water. Four, idols will never be able to deliver anybody when they need it. I was struck this week by thinking of what it would be like to cry out to God in distress and to have God say, in effect, Though you cry out to me, I will not listen to you. Go and cry instead to the gods you've served and see what they'll do for you. Idols will never be able to deliver you when you need it. Five, idols will never care when you die in despair. In Jeremiah, Israel is running from one God to another, from one nation to another, but then comes judgment Then comes reality. Then comes loneliness and despair. And what did God say? All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not care about you. And then lastly, and this is why we read the story in Jeremiah 44, number six, idols will never let go of your heart easily. Idols will never let go of their grip on you easily. False gods can get such a grip on our hearts that not even devastating loss can wake you up. That's what happened to the people in the last story. Even though they saw with their own eyes the disaster that their own sins had brought, they still would not let go of their idols. Or perhaps this is really what was happening. The idols would still not let go of their hearts. Idols will never let go of your heart easily and this is just one of the many reasons we always have to be vigilant to do what paul said in the new testament reading when he said therefore my beloved flee from idolatry never mess around with other gods never give to something else what is reserved for god alone if you sense that your heart is even beginning to wander Remember Paul's words, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Because listen, once an idol starts getting a hold of you, it will never let go easily. And I think we have experienced all of those things to one degree or another, because our hearts are prone to wander. Calvin would talk about our hearts being a factory of idols. We've seen these things. We've felt these things. So I want to share two final words today. First, I want to share a brief word to parents, grandparents too, especially to parents. So we've seen throughout many of these texts, idolatry, in Jeremiah at least, is often a family affair. But in the Old Testament, so is the worship of the true and living God. God puts a really high responsibility on parents especially to teach their children God's ways and to show them how to love and worship God but by Jeremiah's day we see very sadly that some of the greatest family unity was when they were working together to worship other gods now I know because I know you that we would probably never tell our children to worship another God. But many things are caught that are never taught. And so may God root out from our hearts all other gods. Because our children will know what we love. Over time, our children will know what we worship and they will know what has a hold on our hearts and so may God help us and may we help one another to nurture our children not just by our teaching but by our example to love and worship the true king and then lastly I want to return to the question I ended with last week is there any hope in Jeremiah is there any way back from idolatry Certainly there's a warning in some of the texts we read that it could get too late. But is there hope in Jeremiah? Is there a way back? And the answer is yes. And, and remember last week, I said, what's the first step towards coming back? It is true, humble repentance. Acknowledgement of the things that have captured our hearts. But the other part of Jeremiah's answer is is found in several promises within the book. I'll just read them so you can hear a line from each of them. One is from Jeremiah 24, one's from 31, one's from 32. But first promise, God says, I think this is really God's answer. The problem of the heart, idols having such control of the heart, God's promise, I will give them a heart to know that I am the true Lord. Second, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And three, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they won't turn from me. Hope in Jeremiah is found through repentance and through God's promise of regeneration the answer to the problem of the heart is ultimately God giving us a new one. Or as Jesus might say, because Jesus got this from the prophets, as Jesus might say, the answer is being what? Born again. Born from above. You might remember even in his conversation with Nicodemus, when he talks about being born again, and Nicodemus is asking questions like, how can that happen? Are you the teacher of Israel, and have you never read about this? This is coming from the prophets, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that the answer to the problem of the heart and an idol's hold on the heart is, first and foremost, God giving you a new one, or, as Jesus would say, being born again. And if we ask Jesus, well, how does someone get born again i think john 3:16 would be a good answer to that for god so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life our god is not a god who takes our god is a god who gives and he has given Us, his one and only Son, so that through trusting his Son, we might have new hearts that know him and love him. And so, if you need to be born again, you need to look to the Son of God and live. And if you have been born again and you've been struggling and being, and maybe have been wandering away. You need to repent of that and you need to look again to the sun and you need to keep looking. You need to turn your back toward the idols and run and you need to turn your eyes toward Jesus and keep running. This is the answer no matter where you are today. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words... And Lord, would you use them to root out any competing loves, allegiances, affections. Lord, that we might love you with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength. You are worthy of this. Lord, and I thank you for granting us new hearts through faith in Jesus so that our hearts actually are inclined toward you. And yet, Lord, we know how much we still struggle. And so I pray that you will wake us up to any competing loves and and may we run back to Jesus and may we Keep our eyes on you. And Lord, may we help one another as a church to do this, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of our children, that they might not just hear the truth of your word and of your beauty and of your worthiness, but that they might see it in our worship and in our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.